Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, my name's Simon Lord. I'm the founder of Redux which enhances and evolves the BMW E30 M3. The Driven Chat Podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Hello and welcome to this week's Driven Chat Podcast. My name is John Markar and I'm saying a very quick hello at the beginning of this week's episode because this is a big one. In fact, this is going to be something we're doing for the very first time ever and that is... A Tale of Two Halves, or a podcast of two halves. As you will have seen and as you will have heard from the introduction, this week we are talking to Simon Lord from Redux. Simon is an amazing, amazing guy, as it turns out, and as you are about to hear. And in our conversation, which at the point of initially booking, I thought we were going to talk about exclusively the beautiful, lightweight, E30 M3 recreations that he builds. What ended up happening is we, as you will discover, ended up going into all sorts of tangents and details and going down routes that I really didn't expect to go down and yet brilliantly so did. So the first episode of this two-part series, this two-part collection, whatever we're calling this, is going to be the focus on Simon and his history and what has essentially got him to the point of starting this business and running this business so brilliantly. So there's a lot of conversation about his uh, time with the army, his experience in being an officer and how that has transitioned and moved him forward with the ability and mindset 
to create the business that he now runs. And then, as you will tell from the way the episode goes, we build up to the point where we start making the cars. And that itself is an episode in itself. And so you will hear that episode next week. You will enjoy this episode. I can absolutely guarantee it. If you are somebody that aspires to run your own business, that has a passion for cars, and that just thinks in a slightly different way to everyone else, i.e. people with a positive mindset that want to do something different in the world, this is going to be an episode that I guarantee you will really enjoy. So that's what I'm going to say. I will pop back at the very end of this episode just to kind of prepare things for next week, and then we'll go with that, and then it's normal business as usual. So enjoy this week's podcast. This is Simon of Redux and his amazing story. And I'll speak to you again right at the end. The Driven Chat Podcast. And this is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And it's one that we need to give thanks to Will Beaumont at Verka Magazine, who was a recent guest on the podcast, for essentially making this happen. We're recording this from our little studio space in Coventry. It's currently a beautiful day outside and I'm sat in our studio with not only Simon sat opposite me, but also the tables in which we used to record are covered in the most beautiful billet aluminium parts and we'll get through what these are and I know that's quite a strange thing to declare in an audio format but there will be some photos that you'll be able to see on our social feeds along with the upload of this episode but firstly before we get talking about these parts and what they're all for Simon welcome to the Driven Chat podcast. Thanks very much nice to be here and again thank you to Will. Yes indeed thank you to Will. So Simon we've got a lot to talk about today because as as it's no secret to our listeners and people that follow us on social media feeds. Um, I am a little partial to um, historic BMW M cars. They uh, they do strange things to my insides and I get very excited by them and I've been very lucky to own quite a few of them. Uh, the E30 M3 is naturally a bit of a hero for anyone that thinks in a similar way. You know, I'm sure we'll establish that you probably think in a similar way as, as this conversation develops. Um, but in your own words, before we get into the nitty gritty of uh, what you do and what Redux does, give me the quick elevator pitch. What is Redux and what do you do? Um, Redux is a, a passion of mine. So the concept was very simple. I was going to buy another E30 M3 in... 2014, 2013-14. I was doing some work overseas. Um, I had cash available to do that. And I thought, you know what, it'd be a great time to buy another one and work through it, make some enhancements to it, do some upgrades. There was lots of examples online of people doing all kinds of interesting things. By that point, Singer was getting to be established and people were understanding what Restore Mods were about, but mm-hmm. that was pre-me coming up with the concept of Redux. So it was the initial phase was buy another E30 M3, do some tasteful upgrades, and then I've got a keeper. And it was pretty much as simple as that. From there, things escalated quite quickly mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because where I was at the time, I was in um, South Sudan at the time. Okay. Um, and 
everything escalated there very quickly. So there was a coup. I had to get the team that I was responsible for out. Mm -hmm. So therefore, my five-year contract came to a short end. Right. So my cunning plan of doing this build over the course of the five years also came to a abrupt end. Okay. So that that was the the genesis of well, actually, I've spent quite a reasonable amount of time now looking at what could I do to an E30M3. Right. So online at the time, you had people doing engine swaps, mm -hmm. the standard six-cylinder, yep. you know, sort of E46 swap. Some people had put V8, some people had put V10. There was a guy in Germany who put a V10 then. <laughs> yeah. And it fits amazingly. But I was adamant that it had to remain as as the S14. Yeah. Um. So in terms of what else could I do with it, there were off-the-shelf parts. There was, you know, better suspension. There was some tweaks could be done to the engine, of course. Mm -hmm. Nicer exhaust system. Maybe an engine, uh, interior retrim. Yeah. So and this was, is, you say, 2014? 13, 13, 14, 14, yeah. So at this point, the values of them have now started to kind of go skywards, haven't they? Yeah, because I... So I had... I had one which was 2004, and I paid £6,500. Wow. And at the time, Sportivos were 18000 Okay. And at the time, everyone was, oh, this is crazy now, surely. You know? I remember it well, yeah, yeah. So then we had that rapid progression from that so at the time deltas you know you, you yeah. couldn't give away deltas yeah and that's right yeah so there was there was that sort of interim period and it, it's for me it's very much a generational thing if you look at when people have disposable cash available which tends to be mid late 40s mm. onwards so kids have gone through school yeah that side of their expenditure has dropped off and they're now beginning to look at cars from their youth mm -hmm. their dad had one their uncle had one the next door neighbor had one fill in the blank yeah and you start getting that twitch of hey do you know what that looks really good mm. yeah. as you've experienced indeed as many yeah. of your listeners have experienced yeah so so there's a very simple process where you you very quickly hone in on a particular brand a particular genre it Whatever that thing is, it tends to be a brand that you're familiar with, mm. again, by virtue of family, friends, neighbours. So once you've done that, you've then got an era. So as we progressed into the 2010s, I'm guessing we're a similar age, we were beginning to move into that zone of Actually, do you know what? Maybe I can convince the missus that <laughs> that thing that I've always wanted is now on the cards. You know, she can have a new kitchen, whatever that thing yeah. is. So for me, that was coming into the sweet spot of that era of late 80s, early 90s cars, mm -hmm. as we've now seen through all the other companies doing similar types of things. Absolutely, yeah. So having been through that process of, I've now got a reasonable idea of what it is that I think I would like to do. The The, the car for me was a no-brainer um, for a number of different reasons. Uh, I'd, I'd Just a bit of context, I'd, I'd grown up in 
uh, family BMWs. So my dad had pretty much always had BMWs. Therefore, yeah. my mum had had, she had a number of E30s. She had um, a 320. She had a 325 Touring. Um, you know, my dad started off with a E24 635 CSI. Wow, yeah. So, so from the age of 10, 11, that's what I'd grown up with. Mm-hmm. And then the usual, you know, change it every two or three years, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So I'd, I'd gone through that whole era of late 80s, early 90s BMWs mm-hmm. through my parents. Yep. Um, and then I'd bought an E30 M3 when I was um, still in the army. So in my last year as, a, as an army officer, um, I think it was... I think it was my brother sent me a message. Uh, I think it was on Auto Trade or something like that. Okay. So this again is 2003, 2004, and it was a Macau blue, silver leather, six and a half thousand pounds. Wow. And I had the cash available. I went back to the UK. I was on. I had some leave to take, so I went back to the UK. Met at a service station on the M6 somewhere. <laughs> went for a quick test drive. Yeah, great. Handed over the cash, job done. Yeah, and then I was my last year. I was in uh, Germany, so it was great. So I, I took it back to Germany, left hand drive, of course, mm-hmm. and then ended up doing quite a few driving tours in and around. So I was uh, not far from Dusseldorf, so it was great. Gotcha. So you could get into yeah. Holland. You know, you were that whole area. There was some nice nice driving to be done. So that that was my sort of lingering memory, because after that I then moved to. Asia, and then okay. I was in Asia for on and off for ten or twelve years. So I never really had a car after that. Right. Gotcha. So that that was my lasting memory of well, that was the last BMW that I had. And then, as I say, we moved into this zone of okay, now things are starting to happen. Mm. There's some really interesting things available, and then also the the sort of barriers to entry had largely lowered to begin to think about, well, maybe there's an opportunity to do something like this. Gotcha. But backtracking, it was very much just me thinking of still being overseas, Mm. having somebody probably in the UK over a period of time gradually do these upgrades without any, I need it in six months, just kind of do it and I'll send you some cash to do it. So that, that was the genesis of what then became Redux because I got back to the UK after the, uh, the, uh, the sudden coup in mm. South Sudan. <laughs> so it's an exit stage left slightly quickly. Yeah. Um, and then it was a series of coincidental um, bumping into people I'd not seen for a while. So the first one was a retired general okay. that I'd worked for in Northern Ireland. Uh-huh. So my, my first posting from Sandhurst was in Northern Ireland, and he right. was the then brigade commander, so brigadier. Yeah. And I ended up doing quite a lot of work with him because we we were involved with the um, the marching season in Northern Ireland and I was doing his close protection. And so we actually got to know each other quite well, which is unusual for a second lieutenant mm. and a brigadier. Quite a large gap in ranks. Yeah. So super nice guy um, and just inspirational. And so he was one of those few people that could always remember people's names. Great. Uncanny. It was like weird how he could remember people's names. Bear in mind how many people he was responsible for. So I was in London. I was going to a photography exhibition, and I walked in, and I heard him shout my name. <laughs> and I turned around, and he was stood there, and he said, 
I've not seen you since the exact date that he last saw me wow. without even pausing for breath. <laughs> and he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I've just got back to the UK. And I'm, he said, right, come and see me tomorrow. Let's catch up, mm-hmm. which I subsequently did. And so I told him about what I'd been thinking about. And by this point, it was beginning to take shape into, well, actually, maybe I could do something more than just mm. do the car for myself. But again, embryonic stages. Of course. No yeah. idea how I was going to put any of it together. You know, I didn't have the cash to fund it all, but it was, okay, well, maybe let's see where we could go. So just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, um, the thought train especially from a military perspective, whilst I'm, I'm not ex-military myself, I've got a lot of very, very close friends that are. And it's been one of the things that's always fascinated me is about that mindset of what to do when the time comes to leave the army and mm. what, what, is it, what is going to be that next step. And I've got some amazingly brilliant friends and probably some names you've heard of, such as uh, James Cameron of Mission Motorsport yep. fame. Yeah, I know James, so yeah. James and I have been very, very close friends for donkey's years. And he famously, in fact, he's come on the podcast to talk about this as well, Um, famously gave a brilliant story about how he became almost obsessed with this idea of not only what was he going to do when he left it was what was his what were his his blokes going to do when they when their time came to end stepping out of the tank regiment yeah what were they going to do next and that essentially was the birth of mission motorsport the wonderful charity that he now runs so for you was the idea of an e30 m3 project a kind of like when I leave, that will give me something to do. And the business then came as an afterthought. Or had, did you have an alternative plan completely from, for leaving the army? I um, Redux didn't start till pretty much 10 years after I'd left. Right. Okay. So I'd, I'd had, so when I left the military, I, I went to Hong Kong. Right. On a bit of a whim. Okay. The logic being, I'll go somewhere that I've never been and see what happens. Yeah, nice. So at the end, so when you when you sign off from the military, you have to give uh, 12 months notice. Mm-hmm. And then you have a certain amount of leave and time for courses, et cetera. Yeah. So I had a window of give or take three months at the end of nine months. So mm-hmm. the remaining three months of my 12 months where I could go and do other things. And there was no significant risk. Gotcha. So I was still being paid. Yeah, yeah. I had the time allocated to me. Um and I'd, I'd, I'd gone through a, there's a charitable foundation called the Officers Association mm-hmm. yeah. who assist with helping you out that in transition, whatever area you want to go into. Yeah. And they have a network of people globally, of which I then became one, so that if somebody's interested in going to Hong Kong, they can get in touch with you and say, what's it like? Okay, brilliant. Yeah. So fill in the blank for every single type of career you can ever think of and yep. somebody who's been in the military is doing that thing somewhere in the world. Yeah, gotcha. So that was that was my process of, okay, well, I quite fancy that. I got in touch with them. They put me in touch with a couple of guys who are in Hong Kong and that was about as complicated as it got. So I turned up. Um, I was initial looking, initially looking at, financial services which is pretty much what everybody does in it's a very Kong. common thing, yeah and, and and also for officers leaving the army sure. i've got about five mates who've all been officers in the army who are all in banking and finance yeah. of some variety i've never been able to put two and two together of why that's such a common thing but it really is yeah yeah particularly in the city there's a there's a steady um if you go through a lot of the 
the older sort of the car, the guards and the cavalry. Yeah. There's almost a transition of they'll do three years, maybe five, and then straight into a job. At, That's it. Fill in the blank for the bank. Um, so for me, it was just to have somewhere to sort of land and see what it was like mm-hmm. and also to experience living in Asia, which I'd never done at that yeah. point. So I loved Hong Kong was not remotely interested in anything associated with financial services. Mm -hmm. But it allowed me to get out and meet lots of people. Cool. And one of the first people that I was introduced to was, again, an ex-brigadier who was head of the British Chamber of Commerce. Right. So he immediately said, right, come and see me. Go and see so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And these were all guys working for the the well-known private security groups. So again, there's an there's an easy transition from that career straight into that one. Of course. So so I met a number of them, and um, I was going to work for G4S, okay. but the role was very similar. You know, you had like 150 Gurkhas, and mm. I was thinking I don't really want to do something very similar to what I've just been doing. Yeah. And then there was. Um, Another guy who was the regional director for um, is an actually an Australian company, and they were, you know, Iraq, all mm-hmm. the usual sorts of places. Yeah. So he was based in Hong Kong with another guy who was ex special special branch in Hong Kong, and I became their sort of go to consultant in the region. So again, mm-hmm. it was a great opportunity to just bounce around Southeast Asia, doing all kinds of interesting, yeah. obscure, random jobs. <laughs> um. So that was really that exit from the military. And for me, it was relatively straightforward. Again, I hadn't spent, as odd as it may sound, I hadn't spent months and months you know, deliberating about, do I really want to do that? It was just, mm. I've done that for a number of years. I've had a great career. It now feels like the time to, to move on. Because you, like everything, you hit those crossroads where... Of course you do. It was I either staying and commit for another seven, eight, nine years, or now is the time. Yeah. So I was thirty. So again, from a moving from one career to another, mm. it felt about the right sort of age. Yeah, it's a good transition age, isn't it? Yeah. So I really struggled with thirty. I got to thirty and thought, oh God, what's happening? You know, where am I? What am I doing? It was like a real crisis for me, and I think a lot of people feel the same. And I'm always excited to explore that emotion as well, because again you get two types of people and two types of outcome. You get the people that think, oh, well, better the devil you know. I'll stick with what's good. This mm. is safe. This is fine. And they're usually the people I've found that get to a later stage in life and then think back and go, God, I wish I'd tried that new opportunity when I was 30 or 25 even or 20. You know, I wish I'd taken the leap and done that, had that risk. What was the emotion like for you at the time? Were you Are you quite risk-averse or are you quite happy to kind of throw some dust in the air and see where it lands? Uh, yeah, very much the latter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that was that was the same with the military. It wasn't something that I dreamt of from being a kid. It was it just felt the right thing to do at the time. And as I say, I was um, I had a great career, had some great jobs. Um, so I was in Ireland. I, I deployed to Iraq when that kicked off in two thousand three. So I'd done yeah. the sort of operational stuff. Um, worked with some incredibly um, capable people like. General Andrew, mm-hmm. um, and it gives you, for me, what the military gave me more than anything else is a, a baseline. So you have a, an incredibly defined baseline of 
I know that I'm capable of doing this because they put you in the most horrible yeah. situations. Yeah. And that's what Sandhurst is. Sandhurst is 12 months of pushing you way past your comfort zone and just watching how you react. And they make it more and more challenging, of course, as the course progresses. Yeah. The culmination of which is final term where all of the things that you've been taught, okay, now show us what you've got. Mm. And some people bluff it to a certain extent, but you get caught out. Yeah. So what it gives you is that inner confidence of, I know that I have reached a similar point in terms of mental and physical capacity yeah. in that environment. And then I've also gone and done it for real in these environments. So I'm pretty confident that I know how I'm going to react given uncertainty. Yeah. Much more so than somebody who's never experienced any of those things. Yeah. It's such a powerful accolade to have. And I think some people discover it if you're, you know, let's say me, for example, who's not from a military background, but have had some life events that kind of make you realise that, oh, sometimes life can be quite miserable. It can throw some real challenges at you. And those often the those are the most shaping times that you then take with you. And it might be very quick, sudden, sad instances that happen or something or some you know, long-term trauma that happens. Either way, it results in you getting to a stage in your life, especially when something's a bit miserable, and you, you kind of take a step back from the situation and go, hang on a minute, is this the hardest thing I've ever dealt with in my life? No. Am I at risk of being shot at or blown up today? No. Uh, is there a likelihood that seven days from now, maybe two weeks from now, maybe a year from now, everything that I'm fretting and worrying about right now is going to be over? Yes. Therefore, I can probably just carry on with it. So it sounds like the experience you've had at Sandhurst is basically that, that little window of realisation and conscious awareness awarenessness awareness awareness to yeah put you into those environments and go this isn't going to be the worst day of my life i'll just crack on with it absolutely yeah yeah um and there is and that's where the the military humor comes in as well which um you have to <laughs> particularly in the, the the age that we're living in now you have to be conscious of that because yeah. the way in which the humor works in the military is just to unlock those moments where everything has gone horribly wrong and everybody's looking around each other going, what are we going to do now? <laughs> yeah. Particularly if you're the guy wearing the rank, yeah. they're going to look at you and go, you need to tell us what we're now going to do. Exactly, yeah. And that's where it can just unlock and break that. Somebody will say something entirely inappropriate and everyone has a laugh and then you, you get on and do it. Yeah. So so there are, and what they very cleverly do, of course, is it, 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 it's it's carefully engineered throughout the whole course so that they are what you're describing that people may experience over the course of 10 15 20 maybe the whole life yeah they're condensing a lot of that into a 12-month window yeah so it's the constant uncertainty the constant change and as you rightly said and they would reiterate this on a regular basis taking a hamlet moment or a condor moment you know mm. do you remember the cigar advert yeah and you would just take a step back and look at what's going on around you. Because they do it particularly on exercise. So you'd go and normally to um, Sandy Bridge in Wales mm -hmm. for a week, two weeks. And it was just utterly miserable. <laughs> just intentionally so. Because, yeah, again, yeah. they want to put you in all of these situations so that when you go and do it for real, like you said, you've got a benchmark of, okay, well, I remember distinctly 
digging in Thetford nonstop for 48 hours. Is this going to be as bad as that? Probably not. And then, as you rightly said, that's that's a um, and a very military phrase is you know has anybody died or has anybody been shot? And it's not a flippant remark. No. It's just a reality check of is it that's as bad as it's going to get? Are we one stage, two steps, three steps back from that? Okay. So as you say, then you can make an assessment, make a decision, and then you move forward. And that that's ultimately what it comes down to for me is being able to make a decision. It may not always be the right decision, yeah. but you need to keep making decisions because the moment that you stop making decisions, everybody's looking at you and then they start whispering going, it doesn't always do it. Absolutely right. And then the confidence has gone and then they lose faith in you. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that happen real time. And it is, you know, if you read any military history, those moments where things have gone horribly wrong mm. invariably boils down to a person yeah. not making a decision. Absolutely. Well, if we're going to get uh, very up to speed on topic, then we can look at the uh, invasion of Ukraine, can't we? And the, the man at the helm of that, you can tell it's all not quite going to plan. And Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, <laughs> it, it's something that is it's fascinating when, and again, Going back to what you're saying, so there's the the trauma side of it that people will experience that will give them a certain sense of self-worth or self-confidence or that baseline that we're talking about. And then you can also apply that to people who go and do, you know, sports. Mm-hmm. So if you're a keen cyclist or a runner or triathlete or whatever, that will give you a similar sense of inner calm, inner confidence that, okay, you know, I'm... 20 miles into this run I'm feeling horrendous Mm. but I know that I've still got enough to get me through and there's the um you know there's various things online about this where when you think you're at your end point you're about 40 50 percent in and I've and I've seen that play out a lot of times where then it gets into the whole mindset thing and then that is really I guess what we're talking about now is that ability to understand yourself well enough to then be able to apply that to any type of different scenario, whether it's a business scenario, business decision-making scenario, whether it's your personal life, whether it's starting a business, all of those things fall under that same process of evaluating the situation. Is this the right decision? It was always within the military, you know, you're going to go left, right, or straight down the middle. And and in most scenarios, as general as that sounds, you're not that far off. No, that's right. And it may well be that you set off right, and that is the wrong decision. But it's then also having the confidence to say, we're going to stop, we're going to turn around, and we're going to go left. Mm. And that's a real key moment when you're looking at the lads and you've just marched, you know, five miles in one direction. Mm. And you've got the map and you realise that you made a map reading error, <laughs> which, of course, officers never do. <laughs> you know, you've got the map upside down or whatever. Yeah. It is. Um, and you stop and there's a long pause and you can hear them muttering going, he doesn't know where we are. Yeah, yeah. He's got lost, you know. And the troop staff is with you. He's going, boss, what are you doing? Like, where are we? Oh, I think I've got this wrong. It's then having the confidence to get everyone in and say, it's my bad. Yeah. I'm going to take responsibility for this. Sure. We need to go back the way we've just come. And there'll be loads of effing and blinding and cold. But ultimately, as long as you keep making those decisions, 
you're often going to end up where you wanted to be or needed to be. And that applies exactly in the same scenario of decisions within a business. You know, you are never going to make the right decisions 24-7. It's just never going to happen. And and I think, you know, I think the statistics for people starting businesses are not great because they're finding themselves in these situations which they're entirely unfamiliar mm. with, which are, you know, incredibly daunting. Yeah. So having had that experience of being responsible for, you know, other people, their lives, their careers, because again, within the military, you are you're not just seeing them nine to five. No. You get to know their families. So, I mean, particularly when I was in Northern Ireland, the perimeter of the base that we were on was a mile. So you had the married quarters of course, on yeah, camp. Yeah. Um, so if I went for a run in the evening, I'd be running through the married quarters. Mm. You know, so I'd see my guys and their wives and their kids. And so you're taking on much more responsibility in terms of not just looking after yourself and trying to make the best of yourself and your career, but also trying to do the best for your guys because you are um, managing their career. And again, this is something that it's always interesting when you you chat to people who um, don't really understand what goes on in the military because, of course, most people see smart guys marching around looking good at Trooping of the Colour. Yeah. But the reality is the majority of my time as a, you know, as a junior officer was spent doing administration for the guys. You know, mm. my first job, I had 50 people. But that was a huge amount of responsibility coming straight out of training. Absolutely, yeah. Just the reporting alone, you had um, two formal reports a year. So you had a midterm appraisal and then the confidential report. And that directly affected their entire career profile. Mm. So it was taken very seriously. So I was writing as a minimum 100 reports a year. And then you are getting to know the guys and you get to know them as well as you would do anybody because you are observing. And this is what you then realize when you leave Sandhurst. Everything that you did every day in every single scenario was being observed and noted. How you behave socially, if you went down to the bar in an evening, dinner nights, in addition to all the curricular stuff that you were doing. Because, yeah. of course, you do a lot of written work and then all the physical stuff. So every single thing that you were doing was being assessed and monitored. And then that had a direct outcome, obviously, where you were graded, but also then where you were posted mm. when you left. Yeah, of course. Because you go through um, a job interview roughly halfway through and you choose your three preferred regiments or corps and then they offer you a job or not. It's as simple as that. So once you've done that, then you focus on, right, I'm going to that. And then it's about building up to, and then you go and do further training, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I guess my point is that you've got this condensed, extreme educational um, package mm-hmm. whereby you realize how much of that is relevant to everything that you do once you leave. Absolutely. Initially, you don't think it is. So going back to your question of what were your thoughts as you were leaving, you always undersell yourself. Mm. And this was something that became a recurring theme. Um, so for things like the Office Association, they'd have um, meetings in London and you could go and chat to people who were in the process of signing off and talk to them. And 
everybody undersells themselves because they they seriously don't think that all of those skills that you've learned and all that experience you've had managing people the social side of it organizational all the adventure training you do somehow that doesn't translate mm. into a civilian career yeah which of course is crazy but initially you don't somehow think it does you know how does taking 50 blokes on exercise in Sennybridge for two weeks translate to me being an IT consultant etc yeah it's so true it's again I've found this a lot the work that I've done with uh, Mission Motorsport over the years done a lot of time days charity days beneficiary days and talking to people is quite interesting and, and as you say that transition time between leaving and going into the civilian world the one thing I found so I'm a, personally I'm a massive sufferer of imposter syndrome I get into situations where I think what the hell am I doing here how have I got here yeah. and when is the man going to come and tap me on the shoulder and go sorry mate you're you're not supposed to be here that's uh, that's a, an emotion that I'm very very used to and it's one that I found which again I never expected as a civilian never expected to see that from people that have served in the military but it's true and I think it it comes because of course if you live your life down a particular path your whole time, same, I guess, in the civilian world, if, you're, if you've only done one job in one company, one town, in one factory, and that's all you know, then you assume that everyone else out in the world knows exactly what they're doing all the time. You walk down the road and look at these people on buses or driving cars or on trains, and you think, my God, every single one of these people knows what they're doing. They've got it all mapped out. They've all probably had five careers already, and they all know what they're doing. And then you get talking to people and realise that absolutely every single one of us is just winging it, all Pretty of us. And this is true, and again, I don't want to scare too many people that don't have lots of friends who are doctors and nurses, but again, even in environments where you think these people know everything and know the answers, a lot of the times they really don't. And there is a bit of behind-the-scenes Googling and a behind-the-scenes phone calls and a text to a mate going, um, do you know how to diagnose this? Because it happens, and we are humans. You know, we saw it through the pandemic. The political leaders didn't really know what to do and it wasn't necessarily their fault it's because we've never seen this before this mm. is what happens so i do find it fascinating to learn that yeah people even you know the officers like yourself who've come from a position of command position of control being that person that everyone looks up to and goes what now where do we go now what how do we fix this suddenly is in this room and it's like the first day of school again going oh hang on a minute um i don't know how any of this works but the reality is, as time goes on, you do things and suddenly the light bulbs turn on, don't they? Back of your head and go, oh, hang on a minute, I can relate to this uh, because of what I did here or I can relate to that because of what I did there. So it's, yeah. it, is a, it is a fascinating transition. So tell me then, what was, what was that moment that you then realised, and I'm guessing it wasn't something that happened overnight, it wasn't a, an inspiring dream that made you wake up in the morning and go, right, today's the day I'm going to start the business. What was that process that has ultimately ended up in redux forming so is that transition from extracting out of what was a very dangerous environment in africa coming back to the uk having one of those right i need to take a step back here and wonder what i'm going to do next because i wasn't sure the guys that i've been working for were very supportive and i could have gone back and done more of the same for them somewhere else mm. but the experience that I had at, at that time made me think, yeah, do I really want somebody else with an AK pointing at my chest and mm. threatening to shoot me because I was going through a roadblock? No. no. You're going to pay me a lot of money, but there's a certain amount of money that doesn't quite compensate for yeah. some guy who's been 
taking whatever for four days and looks wired. And yeah. so I thought maybe it's time for something different. And going back to bumping into Brigadier and then General Andrew. So he introduced me to um, a group of guys who assist ex-military from all services, again, in making that transition into doing potentially other things. Yeah. And so I met, I met some of these guys in London, and it turns out that the next-door neighbour of one of them was the ex-marketing director for BMW. Wow. In the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. So I was introduced to him and said, look, you know, I've got this idea. I've gone from, wouldn't it be great for me to buy another E30 M3 and do some upgrades to it, to actually maybe there's an opportunity to do something a bit bigger than that. Mm -hmm. So that, that was that transition from being in that environment, having the cash available to do it on my own, to no longer being in that environment and no longer having the cash to do it on my own. So it was quite a simple... So instead of just thinking, well, forget that, mm. I'll either continue similar vein to what I was doing or go and do something else. Yeah. So I don't know, I don't know quite what that change in mindset was, but I just felt, well, actually, I've done a reasonable amount of work into this. Mm. Lots of Googling at wheels and, you know, all the usual <laughs> stuff, all the essential things that you need to do. Yeah. Um, and it, it was it was then this succession of bumping into people that began to point me in a direction that I thought, hey, do you know what? Because sometimes you need that stars aligning for you. Yeah, a little it bit, may yeah. be just that one person that you bump into randomly yeah. that yeah. I'd not seen for how long was that? You know, at least ten years. Mm. So for him to say, Hey, how you doing? Oh, actually you should go and speak to these guys. Yeah. That for me was enough of a well, actually, yeah, well, well and then it was back to that mindset of, well, okay, well, let's just see how it goes. You yeah. know, I'm a, I've no idea where it's going to go. I, I'm not trying to push too hard on this, but if I speak to this guy, then maybe he might introduce me to one other person. Yeah. And then me, maybe he might introduce me to somebody else. And so it turns out that this guy then introduced me to Steve Soper. What a guy. Yeah. So we met Steve, um, had a bite to eat, and... You know, he's now BMW main dealer. Absolutely, yeah. Um, super nice guy. Yep. We had a nice chat. I was asking him, hey, what was it like driving E30 M3s back in the day? Yeah, it was cool, blah, blah, blah. If there's ever a man that will tell you what was good, but equally, or I'd say not equally, if there was ever a man that will give you 10% of what was good, but 90% of what was absolutely awful, it's Steve Soap. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, you know, he was great. And um, so I just said, look, Here's kind of what's in my head. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, great. Best of luck. Brilliant. So I was like, thanks very much. <laughs> um, and then I met Paul Michaels from Hexagon. Yeah. So Paul was being WMA dealer. But yeah. So again, he was really nice just in terms of a bit of advice and have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? So so quite quickly, I'd, I'd, I'd been fortunate to be then introduced to a number of people associated with BMW Nick Whale was another one yeah. from Silverstone. Of course, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd been introduced to a, a body of people that had genuine experience and a passion for 
BMW, but mm. particular E13M3s or that that era. Yeah. And as I say, at the time, there weren't actually that many other people on the rest of You know, there was Alphaholics had obviously been around for a while. The other guys that I uh, I went to see were Eagle. Okay, yeah, Eagle E-types, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd got a really nice email and went down to see them and they gave me a guided tour and, you know, this is what we do. And um, so that, that was great to see. Um, and also just to get some is what you might want to think about. And yeah. so all of a sudden I'd got a reasonable feel for, I think there's legs in this. Mm. It wasn't just a, Hey, this would be cool to do a project and kind of leave it there. It began to feel like there was possibly more to it. And timing wise, it just kind of felt like this thing was gaining momentum and mm. actually people might be interested in buying these things in the years to come. Yeah. And that that was about it. You know, I, I honestly had, um, I'd spent a bit of time, a, a good mate of mine who um, run lots of businesses and, and was far more experienced in all things business than I was. And I, I spent a bit, I kind of said, look, I'm just going to stay with you for a few months and I'm going to pick your brains until yeah. you're sick of me and then I'm going to go and do what I need to do. So I did that and um, and he was great in terms of, he said, right, just just get it all down. So, you know, create a business plan of sorts so at least you've got what's in your head mm. and then I can give you, no, that's nonsense or that makes sense or you need to think about this. Or yeah. So he then shaped it into something that I thought, okay, now it feels like I've got some kind of plan. And then again, that sort of military background kicks in because that's what we spend a lot of our time doing is just planning stuff. Yeah. And again, as you rightly said, it's not always going to be 100%. Certainly a business plan is a finger in the air and, well, it, of it kind yeah. of feels about there. You know, your pricings are completely wrong, mm. certainly. Um, so that was it. So I, so I I had that. I'd, I'd met this body of people that had a good understanding of BMWs from that era, acting as soundboards. Okay, right. So at the end of that, I then felt like, okay, well, what could possibly go wrong, you know, etc. And then the last guy that I met was um, John Mayhead. Yeah. From Haggerty. Haggerty, yeah. So, See, amazingly, all of the people you've mentioned here have been guests on the podcast. Okay. It's very, very bizarre, <laughs> but yeah. Well, this is very, what it's like. It, yeah. it then gets very incestuous. It's a networking opportunity. For sure. Yeah. yeah. We've said this time and time again. Our listeners, if, if people have listened to every episode of this episode of this podcast, they've heard me say this a thousand times, but it is the thing that I love about this industry. It's the fact that we're all in it because... Essentially, we like cars, and from all aspects, whether you're a tyre fitter or the CEO of a huge international car company, we're in it because we like cars, and that's it. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And I find, you know, think, listening to what you've been saying about that, the formation of the company, and I think perhaps it's quite common for people to expect there is this light bulb moment, or you do wake up from a night having had the dream, and you think, right, today's the day I'm going to go and do it. But often, and most of the time, I should say, it isn't quite as simple as that. But you will get to a point where you look back and you realise it is those little conversations, those networking opportunities. Again, because it's passion, I guess if you're a spiritual person, you might say, well, it was fate. It was always going to happen because of the the, you know, the surroundings that you've been in or the, the interest that you have or the drive that you have. Um, I'm personally not somebody that believes in fate because I think we as humans are far more special than that. And it's those 
these conversations that we have and these chance encounters, okay, I admit sometimes it's a chance encounter, but it's more than the chance encounter. It's the relationship that you built up 10 years ago with that chance encounter that spurred them to go, actually, you do need to speak to this other person. And that's the quality of you as a person that's allowed that to happen. And that was forged 10 years ago. And likewise, when that person that you're introduced introduced to says, you want to have a chat with Steve Saper, you want to have a chat with Nick Whale, you want to have, and it just happens. And that's happening because of who you are. Because if you're a chancer and it wasn't, you know, you, you were a bit of a dreamer and it wasn't going to happen, nobody's going to put their own personal reputation on the line and say, have a chat with my mate. They're going to go, cool, all the best with it, pat on the back, good to see you, hope to see you again. And they walk away chuckling. Yes. So, yeah, I think this, it, it sounds like a really, it, it, again, I, and sorry if I'm kind of blowing smoke up your rear a little bit with it, but I, I love the hearing these stories because to me, it indicates what, again, a lot of people don't allow themselves to realise is that people that do succeed in this world and are at the very least given opportunities to succeed do so often because they are good people and they are given access to this amazing network of people upon recommendation, upon um, acknowledgement, and this is how it happens. And I feel like this is what's happened with Rido. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, it's John Markar here from the Driven Chat podcast, the podcast that you're probably listening to right now. Now, the reason I'm jumping in as a separate addition to this week's episode is because I want to bring to your attention the fact that we, as Driven and the Driven Chat podcast, are now inviting sponsorship opportunities for our podcast. The Driven Chat podcast has now had more than half a million independent downloads. We have listeners in all corners of the world, but the majority of them are here, right here in the UK. And the reason I say right here is because that's where I'm recording this little advert section. Now, if you are a company, a brand, an organisation, an individual, any form of organisation at all that feel that could benefit from half a million listeners all over the world, then, well, now is the time to get in touch. Podcast at drivenchat.com is the email address you will need to send an inquiry email to. Alternatively, head on over to the website, drivenchat.com forward slash contact, and there you will see some options of how to get in contact with us and send over a bit more information if there is information you feel we need to see. One thing I can promise you is that sponsorship opportunities are not going to be quite as expensive as you probably think. So why not get in contact? I can talk you through some various different options, episode by episode, or a string of episodes 
episodes or month by month or who knows what other options there may be available for you. The discussions are there to be had, so please do get in touch. Podcast at drivenchat.com to speak about sponsorship opportunities of Driven and the Driven Chat podcast. And of course, don't forget, there is a lot more to us than just this podcast. There's the YouTube channel, there's the website and the social media feeds, all of which we will enjoy having conversations about collaborative efforts. Podcast at drivenchat.com or drivenchat.com forward slash contact to get in touch. The Driven Chat podcast. Yeah, it, it's 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 nice to take a step back sometimes and go, yeah, you know, this. there are days where you want it to all go away. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. 100%. There's days where you just want to throw it all and go, yeah, I'm sick of it, you know, I'm done. And that's why not everybody does do it. Absolutely, and, and that's why most businesses fail, because yeah. of that, and it happens on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, I still have weeks where I just think, yeah, I'm sick of it, I'm done. Don't want, to, don't want to look at any spreadsheets of parts anymore, you know. Sick of chasing this supplier, what, yeah, whatever that thing is. Yeah, but I'd like to think that is that differentiator. And and it was when I was again in the very early stages when I come back to the UK and I was pondering on, okay, so that's great. I've met some people; they've all gone. We think it's a good idea. Mm. Um, obviously, they've no skin in the game. It's then back to me. And I think going back to what we were saying earlier, having had experience of taking responsibility and liability, I felt reasonably comfortable taking it to that next step of, Mm -hmm. okay, now I need to do something about it. Now I need to put something out there with my name on it to say, this is what I want to do. And and the other thing that in the military I've no experience of is selling anything. Mm, Yeah. There is never any... No. Grading of how well have you done related to sales. Yeah, your KPIs. <laughs> yeah. It's only ever related to you as an individual. Yeah. And, you know, as an officer, how have your team collectively performed? Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden you're in an environment where not only do you have to sell yourself because as much as the car, they're buying me. Absolutely right. So yeah. if I'm a complete idiot, yeah. nobody's ever going to buy one. So therefore, you're having to put yourself... So back to the imposter syndrome, absolutely. Mm. I very quickly, I thought I knew a reasonable amount about cars. Turns out, I didn't know quite as much as I thought. (laughs) Um, And you go through that process of... So I'd, I'd, I'd had that phase, then it was... You know, I'd got what was the the, the bare bones of a, a business plan. Then it was, okay, so what do I call it? Mm-hmm. And that was a process. I can't remember how long it took, but I knew that I wanted to have a combination of some German and some English and also some kind of description of what it is that it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember how I... I finally, there was another name that I was looking at for quite a long time and I was playing around with it and I was doing, you know, website searches of what could get all the usual stuff that people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of centred on Redux, which is the, you know, sort of bring back and revive. And yep. and then the like bow side of it was, okay, well, that's the kind of German component and it's lightweight. So if I'm doing a sort of revive lightweight, that kind of makes sense mm-hmm. in my head. And also it was quite an unusual name. So yeah. I also thought that would help it stand out. Definitely, yeah. Memorable. Than something that 
so there are those factors into it. So that that for me was a was a very important phase of okay, now I need to make this into something with substance. Yeah. And that's what I've got to lead with. So it needs to be good mm-hmm. and it needs to look right and it needs to sound right. And I need to be able to explain the context of those things. Yeah. So again, I've not had any significant experience or formal training in it. It was just that process of putting myself on the receiving end of, okay, I've looked at some other people and what they're doing and frankly, it looks a bit naff and that logo's terrible and yeah. I, why, why have they... And then another person that I'd been introduced to, um, Ben, at uh, Band Agency. Mm-hmm. So Ben's dad was in charge of all the BMW marketing oh, for wow. that period. Okay. So he his agency did, for BMW UK, all those iconic BMW magazine photo shoots. Gotcha. Wow. So again, there was a direct link between what I was aiming to do and then Ben, who was now in charge of these, dad had retired. Mm. So I met Ben in London and back and forth, back and forth. And I said, right, I want you to design the logo and I've got the name. That's what I want it to be called. So crack on. Do your magic. Do your magic. Yeah. And in fairness, he did. Yeah. So quite quickly, he centered on the, the back-to-back R's. Because what I wanted was something that was familiar. So if you look at, obviously, the BMW Rondel and the Mm. propeller blades. So I wanted it to have a hint of that, but not just be a direct copy. Sure. Because I certainly didn't want BMW's lawyers banging (laughs) on my door. (laughs) That would have ended horribly. Um, So I wanted something that was kind of familiar, bit of a take on that, and we then quite quickly centered on the the back-to-back cars and that was that Mm -hmm. and then it was some time later i can't remember how long it was after that that i then realized that the logo spells redux so i don't know i don't know if you've seen this no i've missed that yeah um so i've got yeah on the top of the yeah so i'm picking up a rather of course, it's the heaviest bit. <laughs> it's uh, so this is a diff diff cover, yeah. diff plate at the back, um, billet aluminium, beautifully, beautifully machined, and that's the logo, yeah. right dead centre, isn't it? So at the bottom you have an R. And uh, tell you what, do you want to pass it to me? Yeah, go on. You you give the demo, and I'll I'll feel like an idiot for not spotting <laughs> it straight away. Right. So you've got. R here at the bottom. Oh, right, yep. And then you've got E. Oh, yeah. And then D. <laughs> and then U. And then X. And X. Well, there you go. So that, that was something that... Was that a happy accident? That was a happy accident. Ben, ben will try and convince me otherwise. <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty confident that was a happy accident. So that also, to me, added another really nice additional design feature... Because yeah. everybody said, oh, I really like your logo. It's really distinctive. And the other thing that we, we knew was critical was you had to be able to shrink it right down mm. and it still be recognisable. So for a, you know, Instagram, whatever. Yeah. So it was immediately, oh, I recognise that. Gotcha. 
because we get so used to scrolling through and mm. either somebody's photo or yeah. so there's certain logos that you, you just immediately pick out. So those factors combined, we then finalized, yes, that's definitely the one. Mm -hmm. um, and then also for it to have the ability to be used like this. Mm -hmm. So instead of it being, you know, just the, the, word. the Redux word yeah. or whatever, it had to be able to be incorporated. So, um, so on the, the green car that's on the website, mm -hmm. if you look at the perforations on the, the leather, Yes. So the perforations are the logo. Right. And also, there are 30 perforations per logo. <laughs> and they're in lines of three, blocks of nine, at 33 degrees. So it, it's so we'll, we'll we'll get into this now because I was going to say one of the things that is on my my list of things to talk about, and I, I, amazingly we're. We're 50 minutes into our conversation. We've not yet actually talked about the car, which we had a quick phone call a couple of weeks ago before we, we built up to this point. And what I picked out from the conversation and then doing a lot of research, looking at the car, watching videos on the car, reading other people's reviews on the car, is that clearly there is some sort of meticulous mindset with you where everything needs to be right. And it, I think initially it came with, with your description of you're looking at the, was it the rear wheel arch? Yeah. or the rear the, the rear arch of the car didn't quite sit right and again what you have to remember with the e30 m3 it was a car that was a homologation of a racing car that needed to have road going versions so that it could qualify for the german dtm series and that was the only reason the e30 m3 was born it wasn't the car according to um, bmw historians that was had any plan to become this benchmark car that the m3 has now become for decades and decades it was a necessity to be built they didn't even think bmw at the time didn't even think that they were going to sell that many of them and initially they didn't and then suddenly it became more and more popular but you looked at that original car and just thought that's not good enough or just that rear wheel arch that's not good enough it doesn't look pretty enough and was that where it started what was it about the original m3 that initially made you look and go okay i, I want to change that because it's not quite right but then i guess it was just a a kind of domino effect of oh no now that needs it's a bit like painting your skirting boards isn't it you suddenly step back and go oh now i need to do the door frames and the walls and the ceiling and everything else and change the plug sockets yeah it's the back end yeah so the back end is a bit of a dog's dinner mm -hmm. and it all stems from that rear window surround that's it rear window so right. it's the rear window surround which means that they can improve the drag coefficient to make it more aerodynamic for racing mm -hmm. So it's the same rear screen. So when you remove that rear window surround, you've still got the original E30C C pillars underneath it. They just tack it on. Gotcha. So that, the effect of that, at the bottom of that, you have that raised section, mm. which meant that the boot lid had to be raised up off the rear quarter. That's right, yeah. Because all the other E30s sit flush with the top of the rear quarter, as you would expect it to do. Yeah. But on the E30, you've got that, probably about two inch. That's right. And then that extends to the whole boot lid. And then it just kind of drops off because they retain the shape of the original rear quarters at the end. Mm. And then the boot lid, and then it all just goes horribly wrong from there. <laughs> if you're looking at it purely from a proportions and from a, as you say, because race car, none yeah. of that mattered. No. They got the drag coefficient, all good. Yeah. The more time you look at it, the more time you spend looking at it, 
I doubt anybody else has really ever done that. But, but I, I just kept looking at it. And as you say, once you picked up on that, so yeah. I mean, when you get when you when you look at the bootlid, the shape of the bootlid in comparison to the arch is completely different. And then you can fit your hand under the back of the bootlid, and then and then it all goes a bit skew with. So you so as as I spent more time looking at that it then allowed that process of okay well we've i've got the kind of name now I've, I've got the logo that i'm happy with so the branding side of it was taken care of i'd, I'd got the website mm -hmm. okay i'd been through this initial process of if i'm going to do something to it what what would i want need sure because again i was very conscious of not going too far away from that car mm. so you could argue that some of the other restaurant mods out there have gone way off track for various different reasons mm. what i was much more conscious of was maintaining so again one of the things when i was doing the the original brain dump onto some sort of business plan was what is this thing mm -hmm. in what context can i describe it if i'm going to sit down with you who knows nothing about it mm. and do a 15 second elevator pitch of this is what we're doing yeah. So I felt that there had to be a continuation from where BMW left off in 91, 92 with the Sportivo mm -hmm. into, well, what, what, what do I think they would have done next? So, yeah. Yeah. so that gave me a certain amount of artistic license because the thing never existed. But also I had a lot of reference for what they'd done the five or six years before with mm -hmm. the various different variations on a theme of, particularly yeah. the three Evo models. So the final edition had, you know, the extendable gurney flap and the splitter and had the slightly bigger wheels and um, the front arches were slightly bigger because the race cars were now on 18-inch wheels, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, yeah. So, so there was a direct reference of, well, BMW got to here. Therefore, for me, the obvious step is a CSL mm -hmm. because we'd had the E9 CSL in the 70s yeah, and then we had the E46 CSL in 2003-04. So yeah. again, from a... A timeline it kind of sits somewhere in between the two mm -hmm. so again from a context and a narrative things started to slot into place quite quickly then yeah, yeah. so i was very clear on okay if we're going to do an e30 csl i'm not going to go too far away from where the sportiva left off because that would make no sense no gotcha but for me, there were enough design cues that back end mm. to begin to just tidy that up. Mm -hmm. The intention being with all of this, like I was saying about all these billet parts, I don't really want anyone to notice, as yeah. odd as that may sound. My aim is that somebody who knows E30, and I've had this quite frequently, somebody who knows E33s well will look at it and go, hey, that's a really nice E33. And then they'll look at it and go, are those... Are those wheels a bit bigger or mm. is that spoiler slightly taller at the back? Yeah. I like the questions of what's different about the back end? Yes. Sometimes they can't necessarily pinpoint what it is. They know that it's better, but they don't know why. And it's when you have them parked next to each other, uh -huh. then it's, uh, oh, right, okay. Wow, actually there's a lot. Yeah. And it looks physically different. But the aim was always that it was something that you could imagine BMW themselves would have done. That was the, 
the overriding non-negotiable, same with an S14. It has yeah. to have four-cylinder S14. There is no negotiation about, oh, let's put a six-cylinder in, let's put, mm. which, again, a million and one people have done and said to me, well, you know, why has it not got 500 horsepower? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so that back end, um, again, slotted into place reasonably quickly once you've tidied up that, bootled to rear quarter relationship yeah and just tidied up the proportions so the the rear bumper's a little bit shorter and then the arches yes they needed to be a little bit wider and a little bit taller to fit 18 inch wheels in properly gotcha. because the race cars i mean if you look at the amount of camber that the race cars are running yeah for a road car it was you know entirely impractical absolutely and also the rear wheels they didn't change the rear arches so if you oh, look okay. at them, they're tucked in under. Yeah. And often they will roll out that lip of the rear arch because it flattens off. Yeah, of course. So again, it's a bit, it's one of those things that you don't notice until then it's changed. So we, mm. I rounded it so it gives us the clearance so we don't need to dip the wheels in under the arch. Gotcha. And then we've um, obviously extended the inner arch to make all the room. And, and then also the weird thing on the front arches on the standard cars is the wheel sits in the back of the... When you look at them in profile, mm -hmm. the front wheel sits in the back of the arch. Yeah. It's not centre. Yeah. Which is quite typical for a lot of standard BMWs, and it really bugs me. Yeah. And you look at it and go, what? Like, why? why have you... So yeah. obviously we reshaped the front. So the point is that once the back end was beginning to look, to me, right, mm -hmm. translate that however you will... Then it was that process of, okay, now we've got that, then I can start moving forwards to bring everything else into some sort of coordinated symmetry with what we've done at the rear end. Um, so that really took place later on, actually. Um, so the, the, the process was we'd, as I say, just backtracking slightly. So we got the branding sorted, we got all that done. I'm saying we, me, yeah, <laughs> the very, royal, the royal again, we. A very natural thing to do, though. Yeah. Um, so at this point, it was you know it was just me working my way through this, mm -hmm. getting the domain name, you know, getting some social media up there, all that basic stuff. Um, and then the first car. So I I got to a stage where I had what I felt was information that I was confident to then share. Mm -hmm. So this goes back to. John Mayhead. Mm -hmm. So we'd met at uh, Goodwood. Yep. At the racetrack at the uh, cafe at the Keelers nearby in Chichester. That's right, yeah. So I'd gone down, met him. We'd had a great conversation. He was like, you know, I'd love to write something about it. And at the time, it was just still mostly in my head. Mm. And I said, well, I can only really give you a sort of synopsis of, he said, that's fine. I'll just put something out there which he subsequently did. So that was the first article that went on the Haggerty website. Mm -hmm. And it was a picture of a sportivo, a photo of a sportivo with some squiggly lines and it said, we're going to do this. And, and that was it. So we put it out and there was a lot more feedback than I expected. Okay. So then it was, okay, people seem genuinely interested. Yep. And then there was the obvious um, filtering process of, people just wasting time course, and all yeah. the usual stuff. So I got it down to, it's about 15, 20 people that I'd spoken to and seemed genuinely interested, 
wanted more information. Okay, so then I had um, like a brochure done. Mm -hmm. So at this stage, a car didn't exist. No. It was just the the concepts, just the, the ideas. Idea. Gotcha, yes. gotcha. Yeah. Um, so this was now into, I want to say 20, 2015, 2014. Yeah, 2015, so like early 2015. Mm -hmm. So this is probably a sort of 12-month process from coming back from Africa and meeting mm -hmm. people and going through the process of everything that I've described so far. So that article went out, and what that then allowed me to do, because the, the thing that I was very conscious of at the time was we were coming up to a number of anniversaries. Okay. So you had the 40th anniversary of the E30. Mm -hmm. Sorry, of the 3 Series. 40th oh, right. anniversary yep, yep. of the 3 Series. Yeah. You had the 30th anniversary of the E30 M3, yep. and you had BMW Centenary. Gotcha. So all three of them were overlapping over the course of the next 12, 18 months. Mm -hmm. So my rationale was I need to get something out there, and then people are writing stories about BMW stuff all day now. Yeah, of course, yeah. So... John very kindly put that live. That then allowed me, because I'd already had the majority of interest had come from the US. So the US only ever had the basic stock 2.3, none of the special editions. Mm -hmm. And of course, everything that we know about the US in terms of hot rodding and yeah. all of that, they immediately said yes. I'd, that sounds really good. Mm. Where can I find out more information about it? So the majority of inquiries had come from the US. Brilliant. So I thought, right, I need to get something in the US press to just kickstart that conversation over there, and then it will be a kind of feedback loop of... Mm -hmm. So again, this was me just making it up as I went along. Absolutely, yeah. But it just felt the right thing to do. So yeah. I'd, I'd got some momentum now with John's article. That then led on to uh, Road and Track, Great. So one of the road and track journalists had just written an article about the 40th anniversary of the three series. Mm -hmm. So I said, look, hey, I'm doing this. He was like, when can we write about it? Okay. So that led on to that. Um, Classic Driver did something here, um, and then Petrolicious. So there was enough stuff out there by now. So this is like summer 2015, coming into August, September 2015. So there was like four or five articles out there saying – this guy in the UK is thinking about doing this. Let me know what you think. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's where I'd got this, you know, 15, 20 guys over the course of this probably six-month period, five, six-month period. And then I sent them some information out. And the day that I'd sent the last batch of stuff out, I got an inquiry through the website from a guy in the US and it was a one line saying, basically, I'm you know, quite interested in the car. And he put his name and his phone number. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you wouldn't put your name and your phone number. Because, again, I'd had so many. Oh, can you tell me yeah. all the usual? Yeah. So I just replied back to him and said, hey, you know, thanks for inquiry. Like, what, what, can you give me some more information? So then he came back with this long email with all these other builds that he'd had, largely BMWs. Okay. So I thought, okay, this guy's, this guy's legit. Serious. Yeah. So it's now, you know, like October 2015. Um, and he said, great, okay, can we have a conversation? I went, yeah. So we had a call for an hour and he was like, great, when do you want the deposit? Oh. Um, 
I was like, okay, um, yes. <laughs> like, do you need anything else? He went, no. Wow. It's like, really? Imposter syndrome yeah, kicking yeah, in massively. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I'm like, you sure about this? You know, and he went, listen, I've had loads of cars built. Um, the price that you've told me is going to be way more than that, but that's fine. Gosh. Don't lie to me. And I will be here and we'll make it happen. Wow. Well, so, yeah, I was blown away. Yeah. Um, had no idea who this guy was, you know. So, so that was it. So that was reality kicking in on, right, okay, we better go and build this thing. Then. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that was... Order number one. Pivotal, pivotal moment. So that was November, yeah, November, early December 2015. Wow. So from a concept point of view and the, the articles that John had written, the articles that Rolling Track had written... How quickly then did it become, did you start seeing aluminium parts being billeted, carbon fiber panels being created? How, what was the turnaround time from that? Because this is a whirlwind, isn't it? Again, recapping on that timeline, you've, you've left the army, you've had this idea, you've been encouraged by the right people, you've been introduced by the right people, you've had some press, and then suddenly you're on the phone to a man that's about to send you a lot of money to go, right, come mm. then, yeah, make it, yeah. make it safe. Oh, it's frightening the quit. And people that I then got to know were, they, I tell them that and they look at me and go, no, there's no way that, yeah. that, that just doesn't happen. No, exactly, yeah. And, it, and it, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't. So, um, but I'd had, you know, my army career was quite, I joined as a soldier, joined as a private soldier yeah. and then got picked up and then went to, so I'd, I'd had these sort of accelerated periods of, being in a position where you could argue that I shouldn't really have been. Mm. But it just felt right because of the people that I'd met and the momentum. And, yeah. and I was confident that I could deliver by hook or by crook yeah. and get it to a place where I was happy, everyone else was happy. Um, and that's obviously when the real work starts to kick in because it's great talking about it and it's great having these cool ideas and doing a few cool photoshop and renderings and everyone going wow that's really nice but until the point where somebody says okay yeah here's some money yeah now you've got to build it it's the uh it's the um go on then prove it yeah absolutely yeah. Line, isn't it? And, it, and it goes back to exactly what we were saying earlier <laughs> yeah. of this is when i realized how many times i was going to reference back to that previous career that i'd had yes yeah and all of those moments which i never thought would have any relevance in anything else that I did ever again yeah all of a sudden it was you know me in charge everyone looking at you there's nobody else around to go oh can like John can you just do this for me mate because yeah. I'm just gonna again background. again if we were spiritual people you could sit here and go it's fate it's been it's been written in the stars you've been so lucky the reason it's, people kept this. saying yeah that. and yeah. i said there's, there's no looking for all of the and again anybody who's um had any sort of progression in and again whether it's in sports or in business or whatever it is there, there is never you have certain people that you bump into like i say but it's then all down to you to drive it absolutely right because yeah. nobody else has got that incentive to drive it in the same way that you have yeah um so yes people will assist you along the way you will meet people on that journey for whatever reason that will allow you to take the next step or introduce you to that next person as we said earlier but ultimately it comes down to you to get up every morning mm. and again there's now a million and one people on social media who will regurgitate this 
ad nauseum, but it's absolutely true. Of course it is. Yeah. And that's all it boils down to. Yeah. It's yeah. getting up every day and doing the work. And I will sound like Jocko Willick and Goggins and all those other guys that people follow because they just say the same thing. Yeah, but it's true. And everybody will look for some magic shortcut. So, yes, you could argue that that time frame that I experienced was condensed, no question. But it was just that succession of next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. Yeah. Okay, I've got that. Now I can do this. Now, now I can do that. And again, I, I, from a financial perspective, this was me. You know, I, I didn't have any magic investors. I yeah, didn't borrow of money off friends and family. I didn't go to the bank for a loan. It was just, okay, I've got a certain amount of money that I think I can put to this thing. Mm. I don't know when that's going to end, but it just feels the right thing to do. And I felt that I had to commit to it mm. 100%. Yeah. So at that f initial phase, I wasn't doing other work. It was just me doing this thing every day. Yeah. So treating it like a normal job, getting up in the morning, turning your laptop on, looking at wheels for two hours, obviously, etc., <laughs> um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And then finishing at a certain time and going, okay, I've achieved these things today. What yeah. do I need to do tomorrow? And that was it. And yeah. th and it was rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. So there, there was no clever tools that I was using. It was just that same process that um, a lot of which was taken from previous things that I'd done. Yeah. And and also that belief that I think at some point this might work. But also that gnawing, gut wrenching this might not work. Which I think is so essential. And this is again, yeah. again people do this. There are millions and millions of people out there with aspirations to run their own businesses or to even just just progress in a career path that they're on. And they get to these hurdles and those little gut feelings the little voices at the back of your head that go, oh, hang on a minute, this could actually fall on its arse and be a complete disaster. And that, for for the vast majority of those millions of people, is enough to them, for them to go, yeah, do you know what? Nah, maybe not. Because then it becomes uncomfortable and difficult. And it's that tiny, tiny little percentage of people that do hear that voice and go, yeah, I see the risk, but I kind of think it might work. And, you know, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes we take the chances and we... We have a go at things, and it does fall flat on its arse, but we had a go, and therefore it, it matters. It's significant. Yeah, and one of, one of the things that helped in that early phase was um, podcasts by Remarkable Quintus. Uh -huh. So I listened to a lot of um, Tim Ferriss podcasts. Yeah, yeah. So he was the first guy that I had read the four-hour work week. You know, mm -hmm. It was that kind of list of books when you're changing, that you're like, I better read that. Yeah. Um, so I read that, like, hmm, yeah, okay. And then I started listening to his podcast and exactly as we're doing. And you listen to it and thought, wow, I never knew this guy that I thought I knew well, mm. any of his backstory. Yeah. Why yeah. would I? Yeah, absolutely right. And it was really that recurring theme of exactly what we're saying. Mm. They got up, they did the work, they fell flat on their ass. Yeah. They got up again, they did the work, they fell flat on their ass. They got up again the third time. They got a step further. Then they fell flat on the road. Rinse and repeat. That's it. So, so that for me was um, actually really inspirational. Mm. I came to realise because, again, it was, okay, so all these guys have done it, so why can't I do it? Why yeah. am I any different? Yeah. And then you get back to that point of that day where you just want to curl up in a ball and it all to go away. 
and you still get up and then and that that is that is for me the only differentiator between the 99 people that don't okay progress to that stage and and again i did repeat myself but you know i'd seen that played out numerous times mm-hmm. um in that phase of my life where you were watching people doing this every day yeah you know you'd intentionally do something horrible just to see what the reaction was mm-hmm. so therefore when you apply that to yourself that's where your brain just kicks in and goes, yeah, but it's not as bad as that thing that exactly we did in that. then. And exactly that. I mentioned this, uh, I promise, dear listener, we'll get back to the car in a second, <laughs> but I mentioned this on a podcast that went out only a week or two ago. Um, I was talking to the guys from a, a fellow podcast called The Nod Pod and their group of bikers, Charlie Borman being one of them, um, and Partridge and Ben Bowers, and we were talking in a, in a similar line of conversation about the importance of sometimes allowing yourself to realise or not necessarily just realise, but almost embrace, as strange as this might sound, embracing misery. And an anecdote that I gave, and this comes again from another really good friend of mine, James, and I I, I did tell the story a couple of weeks ago, but James, who was a a very successful Army helicopter pilot, Mm -hmm. Air Corps helicopter pilot, uh, James um, has done a a string of uh, jobs since leaving the Army, but one of the things he did, he was responsible for the Morgan Works at Bicester, Mm-hmm. And James invited me one day to drive the new Super 3 Little Morgan on this charity rally that was being organised by the people at Bister Heritage. Um, and James sent me a, it was a WhatsApp message one evening saying, doing this in a couple of weeks, do you fancy coming along, being my driver, being my co-driver? I was like, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. And I think I replied in the message, I'll do it, I'll come, as long as it doesn't rain. Because of course, no roof, no cover. Inevitably it rained. We did the rally and it rained. And the two of us are driving along, squinted eyes with what feels like needles being injected into your face because that's what happens when you get cold rain in your face if you've ever ridden a motorcycle you'll have the same experience and for a while i was driving james is trying to duck down behind the aero screen i'm squinting my eyes can just about see because the rain's hammering me in the face and james leans in whilst we're driving along and says it's quite nice to be miserable once in a while isn't it and it was the first time i'd ever allowed that thought train to go into my head and again it might be the military brain it might be that you know he's lived a life of um, having people shoot at him and do fairly unpleasant things. And I thought, do you know what? You're absolutely bob on. And from that minute onwards, I was driving along in the rain with the pinpricks of rain going into your face thinking, this is actually quite good because at the end of today, it's not going to hurt. At the end of today, I'm not going to be wet. I'm not going to be cold. I'm not going to be miserable. I'll be able to go home to a warm house and relax and tell my girlfriend about the mad day that I've had and it's going to be great and it's going to be a really happy memory but right there at that time it was actually quite miserable but it suddenly didn't matter because again it all goes into perspective and I think this is such an important lesson for people in life and in business but in private lives and socially and it might be going for a run it might be going for a walk it might be redecorating the house it could be silly little things where you have that moment where you sight yourself and go oh my god this is actually horrid this is horrible. What's happening right now is utterly miserable. But it's that, it's the, again, the ability for people to have the mindset to go, yeah, it is now. But when the decorating's finished, or when the run's finished, or when that walk's finished, or that you've climbed that mountain, whatever it may be, you'll look back on this miserable time and go, God, that was grim. But look, it's done. And again, um, it's, a, it's a brilliant rule for business mindset, I think. Yeah, embrace the suck. Yeah. I think is the American version of it. But yeah, and there's a million and one 
stories that anybody who's been in the military can tell you exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah. You know, you're in Brecon. It is the worst weather you've ever seen in your entire life. Yeah. You're doing a tab. You're carrying 20 kilos. Yeah. And you don't think that life could possibly be any worse. Mm -hmm. And then not only that, then you dig in a hole and living in that for two, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so as, you, as you say, all of those things give you that sanity check that we keep talking about, That's that it. Hamlet moment, just to take a step back and go, yeah, but it's not, doesn't suck as much as that. Yeah. And as you say, I, I still train every day and the amount of people that will talk themselves out of going for a run, going to the gym because they get back and they feel a bit tired and mm -hmm. they've had a bit of an after. You never feel worse after training. No. Ever. No. Get the endorphins, all that. And it, it, it is that, and all of those podcasts that I listened to for that 12, 18-month period all centred largely on mm. exactly that same point. Yeah. And we will talk about it, and a million and one other podcasts will talk about it because that's what it always boils down to. Yeah. And everything from that point on allows you to then take that one step forward and go, hey, yeah, okay. So so, so everything that we're talking about with regards to Redux is that progression of just taking another step mm. and another step and, oh, actually, oh okay, that, that's gone. That's okay. Yeah. That's not quite worked out. Okay, we'll go back to it. All right, oh, we'll go this way now. And that was it. And it, it, was, it was just going through that process of elimination of things that I thought that I needed to do and then people obviously adding more to that. So my checklist got ever longer of, oh, have you done that? Or mm. you need to think about this. Oh, you need an accountant. Um, you need this, you need the other. Uh, have you registered for this? Uh, all of these things that I yeah. had absolutely no idea about by virtue of keep speaking to other people and asking questions and have you done this or what about that? And so so that, that checklist just keeps growing and then you become, again, slightly more confident because you take another step. So so that, that period um, was pretty condensed up until the point of, okay, first order's in the back. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd, I'd found, because again, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the funds to rent a workshop and employ people course, and yeah. all the tools and equipment that I needed. So I needed to find a contractor a partner mm -hmm. so that i could say right here's what's in my head and i'm taking care of this is my brand this is all my ip this is my business mm -hmm. i need you to physically do the work for me um and yeah the first one was emotional <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they weren't delivering what i wanted them to deliver right so we got six months in and then i had to completely change everything wow Literally everything. So what at this point, within that six months, what had been created? What was physically? So we'd got the donor car. So so for people that don't know, I am working with an original E30 M3. Mm -hmm. So again, I've had loads of people saying, oh, sacrilege. Oh, he should work with just a standard E30. Mm -hmm. For me, this is an E30 M3, an enhanced and evolved E30 M3. Absolutely. It's not an E30 that is made to look like an M3. Yeah, and then you've got the VIN of an E30 M3 as well, haven't you? And it's got the S14. So just to put that one to bed, I'm sure that people will still complain that yeah, I'm... that's fine. They can shout at their speakers. The worst person ever <laughs> to have walked the earth. Um, so so the process is... Um, so I say he was from the US, so I said, um, 
okay, you need to get a donor. So another really nice coincidence that fell into place was um, I had received an email from a guy called Eric Keller from Enthusiast Auto Group in the US. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're aware of EAG. EAG is if you want the best spec 80s, 90s M car in the US, you go to EAG. Right. So again, people will consistently complain about the prices that they charge, but they get the best cars. That's it. Yeah. So therefore they can source. So I needed also a partner in the US that could source donor cars Mm -hmm. if the client didn't already have one. So after the Ronan Track article, Eric sent me a really nice email. I've read about what you're doing. I'd love to be involved. Mm -hmm. Great. So that solved that problem. I had no idea who he was. Yeah. I very quickly learned that he is, sadly, was killed um, about 18 months ago on a motorbike accident. Oh, wow. So he and his brother had set this business up, um, and, yeah, they were the guys. So it turns out that my first client and, and Eric had bought and sold cars off each other. Okay. So when I said to the client, he said, oh, it's okay, I'll speak to Eric. So I went, oh, you know, yeah. So so that, and then Eric got in touch with me and went, he is possibly the best client you could ever have found wow. for your first car. So I'm like, really? He went, yeah, he's just the genuine enthusiast. There's no pretense, self-made guy, sold out, loves his cars. Yeah. And whatever he says to you, that's exactly what will happen. <laughs> so again, it was whatever you want to call it, stars align. Mm-hmm. So, and it turned out to be absolutely that. He was, without him, I don't think we'd have got the first car through. Mm. So that gave me, again, a huge piece of confidence that, right, I've got somebody who understands this. He's had other cars built. He knows that some things are going to go wrong. But I said from the start, I will be absolutely transparent with you. If something isn't going right, mm-hmm. I will immediately tell you, I'll explain what we're doing, and then I will find a solution for it. Yeah. That was it. Which is always what you want to hear as a customer. You don't want somebody to go, oh, it wasn't quite what we wanted, but we kind of bodged it a bit and it's fine. Yeah, because I knew that he was going to be spending a lot of money. Mm. Um, and again, it, all responsibility, all liability was on me. Yeah. You know, even though I had other people doing work for me, I take responsibility for yeah, it. It's That's your, it. It's, my, it's yeah. my thing. You know, he's paying me. So... So we set off, um, and as I say, about six months. So we'd got the donor car, we'd um, stripped it down, we'd done the sort of initial phases of the work on it, um, and then I was just not happy with how things were progressing. Mm. Um, Things were slipping, you know, and I was just like, this isn't good enough. And then there was a number of things happened, and I was like, okay, now we're done. Mm. So I then fortunately was able to find somebody else um, to finish the car to the standard that I wanted it to. Great. So we got it done, got it across the line. That took about two years all in, start to finish. Um, But that was an incredibly valuable lesson in everything that we've just been talking about. So this was the first time that I had been, you know, running my own business taking full responsibility for a client to deliver this kind of work. Previous to that, it would be me doing, you know, consultancy work in wherever. So that was a very different concept of, right, well, I'm comfortable doing all of this stuff. This was, I'm going to make this thing for you, and then you're going to pay me for it. Yeah. Um, So so we did that. 
Um, that car was very different. So initially he wanted it to be a road car spec and then he changed it. So I then went to see him once we got the donor car, I then flew over to see him in the US and he said, actually, I want it as a more track car because he's a member at, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Thermal Club. In I do. I have heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's just insane. <laughs> just yeah. for nearly, I think it's nearly 500 acres now of just man, petrol head, That's nirvana, right. heaven. Yeah. Um, it's just mind-boggling. So when I first went, they were in the process of still developing it, so they had part of the track done, and then they've now extended it, so it's five, something like 5.1 miles. <laughs> so it's, like, longer than Spa. It's insane. Yeah, it's, it's like crazy. Yeah. And then it's like, uh, so for people who don't know what it is, it's imagine a golf country club, but instead of the property being on a golf course, it's on a racetrack. That's right, yeah. So the the premium properties back into a sound wall. So you have a sound wall around the whole circuit and then the premium properties back onto that sound wall. So as you're upstairs, so you downstairs is those, uh, there's loads of them being on, on the internet where it's just a massive garage with like a small room. Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> so that's the downstairs. Wow. So you can fit however many cars. I think he's got like a dozen cars. And then you have a mezzanine level where he's got one of the um, custom light-scale electric tracks. Nice. Which is, again, so you can cho- <laughs> you can choose. So he's got various corners from that circuit, <laughs> and he's got a model of his property <laughs> in direct relation to where it is on the circuit. Love it. And then he's got billboards. His wife used to be a model, so he's got billboards from her old modelling campaign. No way. It's like... It's the ultimate man cave. Yeah. Wow. So that's on a mezzanine. And then you go up. So then the upper floor is this open plan, living, dining. It's got like two bedrooms, I think. Yeah. And then this big terrace. And then when you go onto the terrace, the racetrack is there where the car park is. Wow. And, and, and. Exactly, yeah. So um, so he said, actually, I want it to, because all my cars are here. So I want it to have a roll cage in it and... So I'm thinking that's not quite what I had in mind. Mm. How are we going to how are we going to achieve that? Because I still wanted it to look like a road car. Of course, yeah. So this is where it then became com- far more complex than I initially predicted, mm. because we put a full cage in it. It's not an FIA cage, so it's not sure. the design that you would expect to see. But it's safe enough that yeah. if he flipped it, it wasn't going to crush him. Um, so we managed to do that, and then I managed to trim out, so you can only see the the cross at the rear. That's oh, it. Wow. So right. the A pillars, it's in the roof, all of that is hidden. <laughs> so that <laughs> that was mind-bogglingly difficult. I can only imagine, yeah. So that went from being like a six-week interior trim to being six months. Wow. Because the guy had to hand make everything to you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. so in hindsight of course it could have been done quicker but at the time i was like well you know what you're doing crack on type thing yeah yeah um so yeah it turned from being road car spec into and then also from um a power perspective so the conversation that i'd had with steve soper was the final edition 2.5 liter cars were running 370 380 horsepower naturally aspirated yeah um and they would, they would last four hours. Okay, until full rebuild time. And then that was it. Wow. And they just rebuilt them. Yeah, so yeah. clearly for a customer car, that was not no. remotely practical. So we, we had to work on something that, and he was saying, I want it, that sort of power delivery, mm-hmm. which also made things 
way more complex than I course, at yeah. first anticipated. So I had in my head, you know, maybe 280, 300 horsepower. Um, Which, let's be honest, is ample on a little lightweight E30. Yeah. So we ended up turbocharging it, which again, the internet hated me <laughs> with lots of capital letters. <laughs> just, it's blasphemy, sacrilege, you know, etc. Et but that's what he wanted. Yeah. And I was insistent that we kept the S14. Yeah. So the only way we could get that number was was to turbo, which we did, and we achieved that number quite easily. Mm. Like one bar boost, three hundred ninety through four hundred horsepower. So, yeah, it was fairly potent. Um, but not the spec that I had in my head mm. long term. So as a as a start point to to get everything up and running, say the client was a legend, all these things that went wrong and we overcame them. And so that was the car that was delivered. Um, and then I had a great time testing it at Thermal with his other cars and all that course, sort of stuff. Yeah. So then for me, it was how do we then get from there to where I've got in my head of what this thing looks like going further. Mm. Um, and that was where we got to with the green car. The Driven Chat Podcast. Well, there we go. How was that? As I'm sure you have now established, Simon is an incredible man with an incredible vision, and he is in turn, building incredible cars. In next week's episode, part two to this conversation, you will hear the continuation of that passion, uh, of that drive, and ultimately the reason that he is producing some really quite incredible cars. You will also hear in next week's episode about the next chapter in Redux's story, i.e. what's going to happen once they've built those 30 E30 M3s. So for now, I will say thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying this content, please do let us know kindly by leaving us a lovely review wherever you're listening to these podcasts. Apple Podcasts, for example, gives you the option there to review and give a little star rating if you're enjoying it. Tell us, tell the world. If you think somebody listening or somebody not listening might benefit from this episode, forward them a link, send it on to them. The more people we have listening, the more we can grow, the more exciting things we can do, the more advertising revenue we can build, and therefore the better things get for all of us from a recording point of view to a listening point of view, people like you. So thank you for joining us for this week's episode. As I say, one week from now, you will hear part two to this conversation where we get into the nitty-gritty amazing depths of just how incredible Redux is as a company and how incredible the cars they build are. So thank you. Speak to you in a week. The Driven Chat Podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.